This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, the rise or the return of the religious left. Can someone be a member of the Democratic Party and a faithful Christian? That was the challenge that our guest Amy Sullivan heard from a pulpit, and it sent her on a journey to find the answer. The result was the book The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. Stay tuned. things not seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Amy Sullivan. She's a Chicago-based journalist who has covered religion and politics as an editor at Time, Yahoo, and the Washington Monthly, and the National Journal. She contributes opinion and news analyses to outlets including NPR, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. She co-hosts the podcast In Polite Company with Nish Wyseth. And we are going to be talking today about politics, and particularly Democratic Party politics, in reference to her book from 2008, The Party Faithful. How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. Amy Sullivan, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having me. So I want to start kind of where your book ends. You talk about a moment in 2007 in the Leisner Auditorium where Sojourners, the evangelical progressive organization based in Washington, D.C., had organized a campaign forum for party candidates And you write that the people who were in this auditorium, the auditorium was full, and it was full of what you say is newly relevant religious thinkers on the left, progressives, and at this event, you walked around this auditorium and you were sort of talking and looking at all these different groups. So take us back to that event and sort of help us to understand why this event was so significant. Well, it was a gathering, as you say, for the three top candidates in the Democratic race for the nomination in 2008. And it's hard to remember back now, but that included Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and John Edwards. And it was most significant, and I included it in the book, because for decades, both the American public writ large and the Democratic Party itself had succumbed to the myth that religion was just something that you talked about on the right, that it was something that came in a conservative flavor and that necessarily required all sorts of more conservative positions on social issues and other things. And so it was unprecedented to have a gathering at which the uh, three top candidates for the party's presidential nomination were not only willing to field questions about their faith, but eager to talk about their faith journeys in addition to talking about how their personal faith would or would not impact the way that they would 
fill out the role if they were in the White House. And it remains to this day both the first and the last of its kind in terms of events for Democratic candidates. There have been other cases, and this year is a particularly interesting year so far, where Democratic nominees or uh, candidates have talked about their faith. There are half a dozen in the Democratic field right now who seem surprisingly very fluent and comfortable talking about their faith, and we could get into why that is. But at the time, this was a real departure. If you remember in 2004, John Kerry was the Democratic nominee, and his candidacy was most notable in terms of religion for the threats that he was getting from Catholic bishops. Of like Archbishop Burke and others like that. Exactly, that saying if he was going to come to a church for worship— and their diocese that he would be denied communion. And in fact, one of the jobs that his advanced staff needed to do during the campaign was call ahead to the church that he was going to go to because he was a a weekly mass attender and make sure, confirm that he would be able to uh, receive the Eucharist. Now, an event like this, the 2007 Leisner Auditorium event, was it met with cynicism? And I'm going to ask that question in two ways. Was it met with cynicism on the right? Oh, they're just pandering to try and get our base. And was it met with cynicism in the Democratic base as well? So it would be tempting. I would love to tell the story that this really made a splash. I don't think it was noticed in either one of those more secular spaces. I'm sure that it attracted some sneers and skeptical raised eyebrows from Republicans and religious conservatives. I'm sure there were Democrats who were made a little uncomfortable by it. But in the main, it was noticed by people in uh, the what's referred to as the religious left. It's a vague, not always terribly helpful phrase, but it signaled to these folks that at least somebody in the Democratic Party took them seriously. Well, in your book, The Party Faithful, really documents that entire chapter in the recent history of the Democratic Party. And it really looks at how this term, the religious left, has sort of regained relevance. But it also looks at the ways and the history by which the Democratic Party from like 1968 onward systematically disenfranchised both the Catholic voting bloc and the evangelical voting bloc. And it might be worth it for our listeners to sort of revisit that history before we dive into the present day. So let's take each of those in turn. How did the Catholic voting bloc get lost by the Democratic Party? Well, there were two main storylines that went on there. I think a lot of people assume it was simply Roe v. Wade Mm. and the abortion issue. And there's no question that that was a very big part of it. However, at the time, you need to remember there were a lot of pro-life Democratic politicians, particularly in Democratic leadership. And so it was not necessarily a foregone conclusion that Democrats were going to become the party of abortion rights. Well, and weren't there also a lot of pro-choice candidates on the right? Exactly. Yes, you had Rockefeller Republicans who were just as likely to support abortion rights as their peers in the Democratic Party. So at the very beginning, it was not clear that this was something that was going to define the party. It became a kind of key piece of the party's platform. And Republicans, we've all kind of heard the 
outlines of the basic story about the marriage between the religious right and political Republicans, political conservatives, and how abortion became kind of a galvanizing issue. It was specifically useful in terms of allowing religious conservatives on the evangelical side and on the Catholic side to set aside the theological differences and join forces for a shared political goal, which was to either pass a constitutional amendment, outlawing abortion, or to change the courts. And it took them a very long time, but they they have managed to do it now. The other thing that was particularly resonant for a lot of Catholic voters in the early 70s was the move within the Democratic Party that I personally think is extremely defensible and was probably inevitable as well to open up the ranks of electors who got to come to the convention. There had been a lowering of the voting age, so you had a lot more young Democrats attending the convention in 72. Some of the old machine politicians from a city like Chicago. You mentioned the voting block that Richard Daly brings, and they yes. actually they had an all-night session and were eventually disenfranchised because he had basically ignored the instructions to have a, a, a block that was representative of the population. He just brought his hand-picked candidates, and yes. then he was disbarred, basically, from being able to participate. Yes, and so it was not a series of maneuvers aimed at displacing Catholics in the party, But that was one of the consequences, bringing in more women, people of color, bringing in more young voters. Because Catholics had been a traditional machine voting bloc in the decades prior to that. Is that correct? Yes. They had had been very powerful in cities because that was where they could concentrate their political power. And that was necessary for them to be able to carve out some areas of religious freedom for themselves. I mean, that's a whole other story. But parochial schools were developed in cities because that's where Catholics could get a quorum, basically, to be able to get space to educate their children the way that they wanted to. That's why you have Catholic hospitals. And so all of that had kind of contributed to this history of Catholic power within the Democratic Party coming out of cities. And with the, again, I think, well-intentioned move to try to open up the party and give people who've been previously marginalized more of a voice in the party, that necessarily ended up displacing some of the old timers who turned out to be kind of urban Catholics, and this did not sit well with them. Well, and and if I may, from your book, you also note that Vatican II played a role in this because Vatican II invited parishioners to become more involved in politics. And so it's just an interesting kind of convergence of a lot of different social lines that all cross right around between 1968 and 1972, isn't it? Exactly. In many ways, it was a perfect storm because, as you say, Catholics who had been focused more on assimilating, not making waves, suddenly have this encouragement from the Vatican to get involved in political and partisan politics at the same time that an issue is coming up that is very important to the church in terms of the sanctity of life, after Roe v. Wade becomes the law of the land in 1973, the U.S. Bishops' Conference did a very interesting thing. They organized their political efforts not by diocese but by congressional district. And it was very consciously an effort to bring Catholic political weight to bear to get Congress to 
change abortion law in the country. And it was so the first time that you had actual on-the-ground voters thinking politically this way in Catholic communities and the first time that you really had the bishops weighing in in a large national effort. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Amy Sullivan. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Amy Sullivan. She's co-host of the Impolite Company podcast, along with her co-host Nish Wyseth. And we're talking about her 2008 book, The Party Faithful, how and why Democrats are closing the God gap, and using that as a context to talk about the rise of what some have called the Christian or the religious left in America. So before the break, we were talking about how the Democratic Party sort of alienated the Catholic vote. But now let's turn to the evangelicals. When Jimmy Carter was the candidate in 1976, he surprised some people by proclaiming himself to be a born-again Christian. And from that point onward, the the, the Democratic Party did not do a good job of reaching out to born-again Christians or evangelicals. And I'd like to know more about that. So my pocket history of religion and American politics for both parties is that it simply was not an issue for most of American history. It's hard to remember because so much of the last three, four decades of American politics has been um, suffused with religious language and religious issues and religious debates. But with the exception of someone like John Kennedy and his Catholicism being raised in 1960, it was just not something that presidential candidates needed to weigh in on until Watergate happened. And what happened with Watergate is that voters realized this was not a failure of not knowing enough about a candidate's policy positions. It's not that we needed to know more about what Richard Nixon would do with foreign affairs or with Social Security. This was us needing to know something about the moral fiber of the man. And voters realized that they needed some proxy because how the heck do you peer inside a person and understand the moral compass that they use to make decisions? Well, the answer is that you can't. There is no foolproof way to do that. But in this context of confusion and kind of a hunger to know more about the character of political candidates comes Jimmy Carter. And as you say, he's a Southern Baptist. He's a a Sunday school teacher. He just naturally talks about being born again and being saved. Didn't cross his mind that that would be unusual. But to a mostly Northeastern political press corps, this was very surprising. He was a species that they had not seen before. So they probably made more of that than he would have on his own. 
an unintended consequence of that is that evangelicals themselves got very excited about the idea that one of theirs was running for the presidency. And so Jimmy Carter ended up getting a large percentage of the evangelical vote and getting the backing of some people, including, I believe, Pat Robertson, who you would not see today coming within 100 yards of a Democratic candidate. So that had two effects for our purposes. One is that it presented as the default proxy for voters an evangelical language with which a politician could talk about values and morality. The second impact is that once elected, Carter was assumed by many evangelicals that he would behave in the way that they would, that he would make his priorities their priorities, that when it came to living out his evangelical beliefs, he would, of course, seamlessly translate those into his work as president. And that is not what he ended up doing. There were a couple of flashpoints. One was around abortion. Another was about around a conference on the family. And this was the same time that the ERA was really flying through states being approved and coming close to ratification. And uh, at the same time that there was a backlash within evangelical communities of really wanting people to focus on traditional family roles. And that was not something that the Carter White House was prepared to adopt. Some of that was because not all evangelicals and not all Christians and not all people of faith translate their faith into the same political outcomes. Now, to be fair to Jimmy Carter, the history of evangelicals and the presidency in our in our recent past is pretty much the history of Charlie Brown and Lucy and the football. <laughs> they keep electing people that they think will enact exactly what you said. They'll act like evangelicals in the White House and they'll, they'll work against abortion. And they have been disappointed again and again and again. Why do we keep electing these people and they end up not doing our policy desires. So it hasn't just been that Democrats have alienated the evangelicals. It it sounds like Republicans also have used evangelicals for political purposes. But the perception of that has been very different between the two parties, hasn't it been? Well, there you go, is the, the word used. Because Carter, just in his person and who he was, was attracted to evangelicals. There was no other reason to believe, if you were a white conservative evangelical, that a Carter administration was going to match up with your interests and your priorities. Uh, There was nothing about the Democratic Party, certainly no outreach done within the party then or sense, really. And it was exactly the opposite for Republicans. It was during the Carter administration that the moral majority and the religious right really comes together and coheres. And so by the time 1980 rolls around and it becomes fairly clear that Ronald Reagan is a leading contender for the nomination, he shows up to speak to a huge conference of Protestant conservative pastors and says, I know you can't endorse me, but I'm here to endorse you. And that spoke volumes to them. And you can hear those echoes today in President Trump, who has a much more, I would say, blunt approach uh, without the nuances that every other Republican president before him has used. He just stands up and says, people hate you. They're out to get you. 
I'm the only one who can save you. And I got to admit, I knew there would be a lot of support for him in 2016. I thought that sort of blunt edge approach would be off-putting to at least a few conservative evangelicals. And I was wrong. Well, so when we're talking about these categories, and I kind of fell on the wrong side of this at one point. When I first came to Chicago, I was trying to find groups to kind of hang out with. And I reached out to some people that were calling themselves progressive Christians. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that meant that they were people who came from, I guess, a more traditional Christian standpoint and had progressive politics. And instead, what I found was they were people that wanted to kind of overturn what I would consider to be basic doctrines of the faith. Mm -hmm. Let's talk for a moment about the labels that we're using. So when we talk about liberal Christians or when we talk about progressive Christians, we might be using the same language but meaning different things. So what would we possibly mean when we use those terms? So as with everything involving religion in the left, it's much more difficult. If you look on the right, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that Republicans have been very successful in doing religion outreach is they have an extremely homogenous electorate. They have folks, you know, the, the religious right represents people who are politically conservative and theologically conservative. There's not a lot of variation within that community. But as you rightly point out, if you say progressive Christian, you could mean someone like me, who I would describe myself as being, oh, well, here where the the words sometimes fail us. I am a Jesus-loving somewhat orthodox, Protestant, evangelical. But that does not mean what orthodox means to, you know, one of my peers on the other side of the aisle who would read into that some social positions that are not what I hold. And yet, you know, politically, I've worked in democratic politics. I definitely am a political progressive. And that's what I mean by progressive Christianity, that my faith informs my progressive politics. But you're right. It includes people who, you know, have very progressive theological views and people who have very traditional theological views. Uh, What ties them together in the main are progressive political views. But now even that category includes people who would say that they're unaffiliated with any religious tradition. But where we're having to kind of tease that out as well for Democrats is to understand that doesn't mean they're people who are antagonistic to religion or to the idea of faith. They're just people who have been turned off in many cases by existing institutions. Now, one of your kind of colleagues in journalism, a a fellow by the name of Jack Jenkins, has put forward on social media the hypothesis that when we talk about the new rise of the religious left, we're actually talking about something that has been there all along, but kind of went into hibernation and has come back. Would you agree with that assessment? Or would you say, no, really, the religious left did disappear, it did become dormant, and now this is something new that we're dealing with? So there has always been a religious left. What we think of now as the religious left may be best personified by someone like William Barber, the pastor from North Carolina who got national attention for leading Moral Monday protests in that state, um, has its roots in the religious communities who were abolitionists, 
who were early pacifists, who campaigned for progressive labor laws, who were on the front lines with the civil rights movement, who were against nuclear armament. So this is a tradition that has existed for a long, long time. It got swamped in the public consciousness by the religious right. It has never come even close to the savviness of the religious right. And in fact, many people on the left take pride in not being savvy. So it is something that kind of fell off our radar, certainly was not covered within the mainstream journalism world over the last few decades. And is starting to acquire more savviness, is starting to get more coverage. That was one of my explicit jobs for myself when I got into journalism was to raise up the voices and profiles of people who were not heard from as often uh, to diversify the, the world of who is religious for readers and listeners. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Amy Sullivan about her recent book, The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. Sullivan is co-host of the Impolite Company podcast with Nish Wyseth. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week in our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Amy Sullivan. She's a Chicago-based journalist who's covered religion and politics for a variety of publications. She co-hosts the podcast In Polite Company with Nish Wyseth. And we're talking today about her recent book, The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. So it's been about 10 years since the publication of your book, The Party Faithful. In that time, we have seen, you mentioned Barack Obama, and he was an explicitly, uh, a candidate who explicitly identified with Christianity, and yet he was not seen by, I guess, evangelicals and others on the right as being authentically Christian. How can the trends that you talk about in your book up to 2008 help us understand the emerging political climate where even those that explicitly identify with Christianity are not allowed to be Christian in public? So one of the things that has happened since 2008, unfortunately, is that political tribalism has solidified a lot of religious voters and the way that they view faith in a political arena. And by that, I mean a number of things. One of them is that the percentage of Americans who said that they thought Barack Obama was a secret Muslim was the same when he left office as it was when he started. In fact, might have been even a little higher. That was not a statement of them actually thinking he's Muslim. It was a statement representing their political tribal opposition to Barack Obama and everything about him. He was one of the most outspoken presidents in terms of being very explicit about his Christian faith. He held Easter breakfasts uh, seven out of his eight years in the White House and gave kind of mini sermons at them, um, talking in very open terms about resurrection and what it meant to his faith and his life. He gave 
I believe it was in 2015. I should know this because it's one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life at the National Prayer Breakfast. It was basically a rumination on the verse that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love. And I'm going to forget the rest um, off the top of my head. But he had developed over a number of years this theology of fear that has come to define a lot of religion on the American right and pushed back in his own way uh, with countless examples of where the Bible exhorts us to be not afraid and kind of making an argument that that it's not a terribly Christian response to a feeling of cultural change and not knowing where your place is to react in a defensive crouch and uh, to always speak out of fear. That is something that did not filter down <laughs> to most Americans. And I, w- I would argue it's because they have very preconceived ideas now when they look at the parties. If you looked at the two-party conventions in 2016 – the Democrats had religion all over the place. I was shocked as somebody who has been watching this um, for decades. There were half a dozen uh, religious leaders who were on the stage and not just offering prayers, but in many cases having their five minutes to talk. Sister Simone Campbell, who is famous for the her nuns on the bus bus tour to raise awareness about some social justice issues. And Reverend William Barber was there. And for goodness sakes, Tim Kaine talked about his time as a Catholic missionary. And when Hillary Clinton came out, they had passed out signs throughout the arena that featured a a saying of John Wesley because Hillary Clinton focused on her Methodism and a number of the speakers focused on her Methodism. So if you were looking at the convention with an objective eye, I think you would have to notice that there was religion all over the place. It was also, not coincidentally, organized by an ordained minister in the Democratic Party, Leah Daughtry, who is the former chief of staff for the Democratic National Committee. On the Republican side, I think it was the least religious convention that that party has had in decades. There were very few religious leaders who were up on stage. The ones who were really crossed lines in ways that violated the norms that we've had in political life, calling upon God to vanquish Hillary Clinton and referring to her as our opponent in prayers. So that is just not something that's been done in American politics before. And that was about the only time you ever heard religion referenced. So just that example, I think, did not scan to most Americans at home as telling them that the Democratic Party was now embracing religion and the Republican Party was not. I would think even hardcore Democrats who are sympathetic to this idea, if you ask them what they heard from the parties, they would assume that Republicans were embracing faith. It would be a version that they disagree with, but they would they would assume that. And they would assume that Democrats had basically had a secular, godless convention. And I don't know at this point how you get through that, except the other big change that we've had in the last 10 years is Donald Trump. And he is, for many Americans, and particularly religious Americans, he has provided the emperor has no clothes moment uh, through which they are seeing the religious right. 
And let, let's unpack that for a moment. So the emperor has no closed moment, meaning that the religious right is what in the political landscape? So their critics have said for a long time that they were essentially part of the Republican Party infrastructure, that their their priorities that they would list, if you listen to somebody like Tony Perkins or Ralph Reed, are things like corporate tax cuts. So a friction between what we might call fiscal conservatism and moral conservatism. Some of that, but more that the charges they have sold their soul, mm. that there's nowhere else for them to go. And so they have just kind of thrown their integrity overboard and said, we're all in. We're going to do whatever Republicans need us to do and hope, as you said earlier, hope that they will finally deliver for us. And boy, has Donald Trump delivered for them so far. But in excusing everything about him, whether it is personal behavior that they railed against when it showed up in a slightly different form in Bill Clinton, whether it is constant lies every single day, whether it is personal corruption and professional corruption, so many national evangelical figures have been willing to excuse it away that it has it has finally proven their critics right, I think. It's fair to say. Now they would say we don't have any choice. But those of us who have been kind of holding them to account would say, fine, let's just let's stipulate that you didn't like Hillary Clinton. And so you felt like you had to vote for Donald Trump. That doesn't mean that for four years you were bound to be gagged and couldn't say anything, couldn't hold him to account as we are supposed to do as people of faith with our leaders who are in power. And as citizens. As citizens as well. (laughs) And so uh, when we look at this current political climate, it seems to me like everything that I grew up with, because I grew up as a Reaganite Republican. I, I was raised in a, in a very right-wing household. And it seems to me like all the things that I understood conservatism to be when I was a child have completely been thrown over the side of the boat. And just as you said, you know, so we're, we, we are now leaving individual liberty and individual autonomy behind in favor of a kind of a state that is very interventionist with regard to personal choices, but very hands-off with regard to any kind of oversight of business or commerce. And, and that to me, I mean, I, I, see, I see what you're saying, but to me it feels continually like the fiscal conservatives won and like there, there is no place now for a moral voice in the Republican Party. Is, is my analysis off base or am I tracking with something that you're seeing as well? Well, it continues to be tested, but so far we have not heard moral voices coming out of the Republican Party. I mean, the fact that we can identify one or two Republicans in the House, say Justin Amish, I think, from Michigan, has spoken out and pushed back against Trump. And, you know, the departed now from the Senate, Jeff Flake and uh, a few of his other now former colleagues. The fact that we can name them on one hand tells you what has happened to this party. It is as if he is testing them and trying to see what else they can bear um, and have to swallow and just say, you know, he's our guy. We're going to stand behind him. So when a reader is trying to get up to speed 
If they look at your book, what are the main takeaways that you would want them to get from this book now in 2019, as opposed to when you wrote it in 2008? Well, everything that's in there about religion on the right is only more so today. And I say this with some chagrin, everything that's in there about Democrats and religion in terms of I tracked how they kind of succeeded in pushing away a lot of voters who were people of faith and how they were starting to turn that around. It has been treading water (laughs) for the last 10 years in terms of the Democratic Party. They are starting from here. But for instance, a candidate like uh, Pete Buttigieg, I have a copy on its way to him because he is somebody who talks a lot about his faith, who has been combative, which is something we have not heard from Democrats of faith in a long, long time, and willing to defend his faith against somebody like Mike Pence, but also push Mike Pence and say, you know, you've got a log in your own eye if you're going to critique my Christianity, because here's where I find your Christianity lacking on this, this, and this issue, which is definitely new. But in order to understand the challenge of getting the party apparatus to recognize that people of faith are their voters, they are, you know, people of color are exponentially more likely to be religious than white Democratic voters. You have to understand where the party has come from here and to understand the institutional barriers. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. I'm speaking today with Amy Sullivan about her book, The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on the ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Amy Sullivan. She's a Chicago-based journalist who's covered religion and politics for a number of publications. She wrote a book in 2008 called The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. The book is still relevant to our conversations today. She's also the host of a podcast with Nish Wyseth called Impolite Company. And that's actually where I want to go next. You, you, your career has been in print journalism, but recently you chose to go into the audio realm and start this podcast, Impolite Company. Tell us a little bit about that and what it was that you and Nish Wyseth wanted to do in moving into this kind of journalism. Well, partly it is that, as you have found in this medium, it is so fun to be able to work through ideas and issues with somebody else or with several somebody else's and kind of in real time be challenging each other and pushing each other. And so there have been any number of times when we have had an issue on the table to discuss for an episode and it's ended up as an op-ed for one or the other of us uh, because it allows us to kind of work through our ideas in a more informal way. So it's more complementary with 
print journalism than maybe I even realized it was going to be at the beginning. But the second part of it and a, a reason that we've we've really enjoyed this is that it has the ability to reach people who were not necessarily reading me at Yahoo or in Time Magazine. And so particularly women over the last few years, obviously it's been a fraught time for a lot of American women. And when we looked around the podcast scene, we saw a few places uh, where people were talking about religion and politics. We did not see anywhere where it was two women talking about it, and particularly not on the left. And we felt pretty strongly that our place and our religious profile was something that needed to be represented. Well, and so what has surprised you the most as you've been uh, sort of going into this new uh, medium of engaging with an audience? Something I, I was not expecting, but that makes sense to me now that we've been doing this for a little while, is that in print journalism, people tend to read what they know they're already interested in. In the podcast world, often, and I find this with the podcast I listen to as well, sometimes you listen to something that is, you know, your personal beat, uh, to use a journalism word, something that is already a big interest of yours. But often, people are looking to learn something about an area that they don't already know about and to be able to have somebody who can quickly bring them up to speed on it. And I think that is the case with religion. We certainly hear from a lot of people who I interact with on Twitter and I know they are very religion conversant and interested in religion and politics and where the two intersect. But I'm constantly surprised in a very pleasant way to hear from the people particularly in my own life, who listened to the podcast, who previously didn't really have any interest in religion. It wasn't something that came up between us, but who enjoy being able to kind of work through these issues and get a hour-long update on religion stories in the news, on what's going on with different campaigns. And uh, it's just been fun to be able to talk about it that way. Now, in your book, The Party Faithful, you start out and you kind of reference this throughout the book, a moment when you're sitting in church and you hear from the pulpit, you cannot be democratic and Christian. You, can't not, you cannot be a member of the Democratic Party and be a Christian. Take us back to that moment and, and flesh that out for us. What, what was that moment like? So it was something I heard while I was sitting in the church of my childhood, which was a, uh, it's an American Baptist church in suburban Detroit. And it's a message that I knew that millions of evangelicals were hearing around the country, but I had never actually heard it from the pulpit. I remember my cheeks getting hot and red and feeling like this was a break for me. This was a break. I described myself as I used to be Baptist or I grew up Baptist, and that for me meant that I, I was not Baptist anymore. That was a difficult uh, personal development, and it might have led me to conclude that, in fact, I could not reconcile my faith and my politics if I had not shortly thereafter discovered a fantastic, progressive, social justice-oriented, multiracial, multi-class, multi-generational Baptist church in Washington, D.C., and that has kind of reoriented my faith and political life since then because 
up until then. And I think this has been the experience of a lot of people who maybe have met other progressive Christians via social media. There's always kind of the nagging thought in the back of your head that maybe I'm not reconciling these. Maybe I'm just making compromises that are a step too far. Maybe my faith really is compromised here. And I'm excusing things in order to get the political outcome that I want. But the community of progressive Christians, and by that I mean Jesus-believing, theologically sound, but politically progressive Christians in the U.S. is so much larger than anybody knows. And I think slowly, one by one, many of us are beginning to realize that there are churches out there that exist for us. So after all of this reporting for many decades on the American political and religious landscape, what is it that keeps you hopeful? What keeps me hopeful, without question, are the people I continue to meet in person, who I interact with on Twitter. I know it's fashionable to um, be down on social media, but I, for all its faults, uh, will be forever grateful for it, for connecting me with people like Rachel Held Evans, who we are just this week um, grieving, Jen Hatmaker, Beth Moore, so many women who have become close friends of mine in just the last few years who are fierce Christians and who have each other's backs and yet who are models of a very different type of Christianity than I was told growing up was the only acceptable kind. And I continue to meet people in person, through emails, through tweets, through direct messages, through people uh, referring their friends to me. And the fact that people are still looking for alternatives, that they have not if they have been alienated by a face of faith or a face of Christianity, it has not led them to give up on faith altogether. That gives me hope. Well, Amy Sullivan, I am constantly confused by the political landscape that we're living in and your work, both in your magazine work and your podcast work, but also your book, The Party Faithful, really has helped to give me a grounding and an understanding of of where we are and where we've come from. So thank you for that work, but also thank you for taking time to speak to us today. It's been a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Amy Sullivan. She is a Chicago-based journalist who's covered religion and politics for a variety of publications, including Time, Yahoo, and The National Journal. She's the co-host of Impolite Company, a podcast with Nish Wyseth. We've been talking today about the rise or maybe the return of the Christian or religious left, and we've been doing that in the context of her 2008 book, The Party Faithful, How and Why the Democrats Are Closing the God Gap. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijik. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash notseenradio. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.